You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Well, we're in 100 days of prayer, aren't we? And it's, it's been really great. It's been so encouraging to pray together, to, as a church, engage in that together. Uh, and I think already to experience something of the fruit of that in our lives. I just want to encourage you, let's keep on going. We're not quite at the end yet, but let's keep pressing in. Um, but there's always a sense of wasting it a little bit. I think my own personal reflections are that I've probably wasted a fair bit of the 100 days of prayer uh, and possibly could have made more of it in, in certain ways. I think we're all going to feel like that to some extent because we're not monks who get to live in a, a monastery somewhere and only pray and farm vegetables, small time. Um, but let's keep using the opportunity. Let's keep allowing that to stir us, to nudge us towards exploits and faithful, uh, faithful responses to God during this time. Well, this morning I'm going to be preaching from Genesis chapter 22. And uh, in just a moment, Lucy is going to be, Lucy Kemp is going to read the first couple of verses. Um, the way I'm going to do it is just, uh, we'll read some scripture and then uh, I'll make a few comments about it and then we'll read some more uh, and we'll kind of work our way through the chapter in that way. So, uh, Lucy, if you are ready, let's, uh, let's see this scripture. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Great, thank you. Let's pray briefly before we get into this together. Father, thank you for the gift of Scripture. Thank you that this God-breathed Word uh, has the breath of God in it and through it and out of it. Uh, And Lord, we want to open our hearts to your Word this morning. We want to experience your breath in our lives, your Spirit working powerfully in us through your Word today. Amen. Okay, so here we go, the first couple of verses of Genesis chapter 22. Uh, what I'm going to do is, as we work through this chapter is pull out four key verbs that appear as we work through the chapter. And the first one is this, it's the, the word test. The very first verse tells us, after these things God tested Abraham. And it's a very good question to ask after what things? What exactly does God, or what exactly does the text mean when it says after these things? Well, the answer probably means everything that has gone before in Genesis's portrayal of the life of Abraham. Everything from probably chapter 12, verse 1, where God calls Abraham to leave his family, his background, his home, to go to a place where God is calling him and that God will bless him. It involves that. It involves massive promises to Abraham that through him and his childless wife, Sarah, 
A son will be given who will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. It includes the temptation to gain financially from the king of Sodom after a great battle. It includes stories of Abraham's selfishness, of selling his wife down the river to save his own skin. It includes tales of Abraham's generosity, giving his, his nephew Lot first pick of the land that is opening up before them. It includes his capitulation to Sarah's request that he should sleep with her servant girl in order to try and procure a son that way. And it would include finally the miraculous arrival to Abraham and Sarah of a son called Isaac in their old age. After these things, God tested Abraham. But a lot of the things that have gone before look a lot like temptations or tests. So in a lot of ways, it's not the first test that Abraham has experienced, but it is definitely the most significant. It's definitely the hardest one. And note that it's the one that's right towards the end of his life as well. Don't be robbed of thinking that it all gets easier, spiritually speaking, the older you get. Perhaps the greatest tests of your spiritual life are near the end. Perhaps that's why the scriptures encourage Christians to run with perseverance, to not give up, to not go loosey-goosey after a while, thinking, I've got this down. Also notice that for the very first time in the story of Abraham, with all the things that could be construed as tests and temptations, this time, God tests Abraham. It's the first time that we hear this. God tested Abraham. Now, it's worth saying that it's not unusual to find objectors to the Bible, or just to religion in general, going bananas at this point. Because, well, on the face of it, this is a pretty ugly scripture. Here we have a man, Abraham, who has been made promises by God, by a divine being, and then that same divine being says, great, now take that child that you've been waiting all these years for, and go and sacrifice him to me on a mountain. And that, to people who are, well, to be honest, you don't even have to be an objector to the Christian faith. That is, it just looks really awful, doesn't it? If the horror of this text doesn't make you shudder a little bit, you're not paying attention. It should really make you go, what? Because it's a very, very difficult, tricky thing to get your head around. Now, not to bore you with lots and lots of details, But there are biblical scholars who have explored this text, who have asked the questions of this text, who have wondered whether part of the reason for this text's existence in the Bible, in in Genesis, is to somehow explain or give a reason why Israelites do not sacrifice their children to a god, but in fact substitute sacrificing children for sacrificing animals. That's one potential world behind the text, reason for it, but it's not a reason that the text itself gives, and that's all that we've got to go on, right? This is what we have. We have the text of the Bible. We have God testing Abraham and saying, go and sacrifice the son 
whom you love. But it's just at this point that the word test is so important. You see, we are given as readers of Genesis chapter 22 an insight into this story that Abraham himself did not get. The text does not say, after these things, God said to Abraham, I'm testing you, Abraham. Take your son, Isaac. Because I think at that point, Abraham would have been, ah, I said, okay, great. Abraham never gets that insight. But we do. And that's very, very important. Please, whatever you do, don't make the mistake of saying God was only testing Abraham. Or God was just testing Abraham. The Bible doesn't say that. And as far as Abraham was concerned, there was no just or only, and it wasn't a test. As far as Abraham is concerned, God is deadly serious. When we say God was only testing or just testing, we weaken significantly the importance of the word test. Now we need to riff around testing a little bit. Because one of the things that this scripture does, by setting it out, by telegraphing to every reader of this text everywhere that God was testing Abraham, by telling us that we get to see something that Abraham didn't know, this story somehow becomes programmatic for later readers, Jewish or Christian in fact, and tells us something about the nature of testing, about the nature of human life with God. It tells us something about what might be involved in walking with this God. In fact, Pete Rayner felt like he'd maybe been reading my notes but when he was sharing just before I got up to speak. This story teaches us something about the nature of testing. In Hebrew, there are three main verbs for testing, and they all carry a similar kind of conceptual meaning. They're used in different circumstances, but they're, they're often, they can interchange. Normally, it's God who does the testing in the Hebrew Bible. And apart from, in this instance, Abraham, it's usually the people of God. It's usually the Israelites who are being tested. The congregation is being tested. Occasionally, the testing has to do with God's promises. But mostly, the testing has to do with what we could call, in a neat little turn of phrase, a quality control exercise. (laughs) It's about an inspection of what is in the heart of a person. So one well-known scripture that talks about testing is Proverbs 17. It says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. If you are a Christian of a certain age, you might remember cutting edge one, two, three, or four. The crucible for silver, and the furnace for gold. Martin Smith, anyone? Nobody's a... Oh, you're the one. Thanks, Linda. That's the one. You got it, yeah. 
lovely, like acoustic guitar, light, strummy, pious. But here's the thing. By framing testing using a metalworking analogy or a metalworking metaphor, it suggests that God's testing of human hearts involves intense heat and purification and refining that isn't a light dusting or a polishing, but is massive, blazing, burning heat to refine something that is of great worth. And so we find that testing, when it comes to God testing people, is an intense, deep, purifying and purposeful thing. Do you know God does not play games with you? God does not play tricks. He's not the divine version of the enormous crocodile, cunning plans and clever tricks. (laughs) That's not the way that God does things with you. But he does test you, and he will test you. And the testing will be intense, and it will be painful, and it will feel pressured. Because stuff that is of value is only revealed by that means. And God cares more about human hearts than he does about gold and silver. What we're going to find is that Abraham, in a certain sense, is a model of response to the divine testing. He doesn't know. We do. He didn't know. He didn't know God was testing. He just just obeys. He just sets off. Genesis 22, therefore, gives us some kind of insight into what testing is for and how we might respond to testing when it comes upon us. We're going to hear now verses 3 to 12. So Lucy's going to read to us and then we'll talk about the second key word to take from this text. Thanks, Lucy. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar 
on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Thank you so much, Lucy. So the second verb here to focus on is fear. Before we go there, by the way, the, the verse in there, it says that Isaac bound his son, Isaac. Abraham bound his son, Isaac. This text is called the Akedah. It's referred to as the Akedah in Jewish faith, and most Christian scholarship on the Old Testament calls it that. Akedah means binding. It's often talked about as the sacrifice of Isaac, but as you just heard, Isaac doesn't get sacrificed in the end, but he is bound up and placed on the altar, and so it's often referred to as the Akedah. And if you hear that or read that, then you will know, ah, that's what it is referring to. But we're going to think about this word fear. God tests Abraham, and Abraham sets out on this terrible journey, not knowing that it is a test. Abraham journeys off to the place that God will show him. He leaves his servants and goes with Isaac to the mountain. That's perhaps a hint there that Abraham either thinks God will come through and this won't have to happen, or perhaps he's trying to throw Isaac off the scent. Who knows? The story doesn't tell us. You have to resist with texts like this, filling in the blanks. Because there are lots of them. There are lots of open spaces in this story. And most Christian scholars, most Bible commentators can't resist adding in details, psychologizing it, saying, well, what would have probably happened is this, and they would have been talking like that. And you think, actually, no. (laughs) We just don't get that level of detail. And once again, we are back to the fact that we just have the text, okay? Having bound Isaac, Abraham is about to plunge the knife into his son. This is the great cliffhanger moment, if you like. If it was an episode of 24 or something like that, it would be the... And then you'd be waiting a whole week on tenterhooks to see what happened at nine o'clock on BBC One on Sunday. But we don't have to wait till next week. The angel of the Lord calls from heaven and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. In Old Testament terms, the fear of God represents the appropriate human response to God. It's the Old Testament's equivalent, if you like, if I can speak in those terms, of trust, or perhaps even faith, believing, trusting. Fear of God is used throughout the Old Testament to describe people whose response to God is the appropriate one. Abraham fears God, and now God knows it. Now, it's probably unwise 
to get tied up in knots asking questions about systematic theology and the divine knowledge of things at this point. The author of Genesis 22, whoever he or she or they were, was not interested in answering systematic scruples about divine foreknowledge or anything else. The author of Genesis 22 is interested in portraying what appropriate human response might be to divine testing. On one level, we could say that God, of course, knows all things without having to think or reflect or conduct any kind of inventory, that all of human time and history is just open and perspicuous to God now, eternally, bam. From a systematic perspective, or maybe a philosophical theological perspective, but from the, from the perspective of the text, from the perspective of this story, God carries out something of an inventory and learns something about Abraham, or perhaps confirms something about Abraham. Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son from me. Now you should not at all set off systematic theology and the Bible against one another because that's, well frankly, that's ridiculous. The authority for Christian life and practice is the Bible, not a second order thing called systematic theology. Systematic theology is very, very helpful as and where it illuminates the Bible but it is not a replacement for the Bible. Your primary goal as a Christian believer is to reflect on our source text, which is Scripture, which we confess to be normative for Christian faith and practice. And so that's what we're trying to do here. And so the question is, what is it about this thing that shows God that Abraham does indeed fear him. What is it about this particular test? What is it about the way that Abraham has conducted himself that enables God to say, now I know? I mean, frankly, God could have said, yeah, okay, now I know, the minute Abraham left home, (laughs) you know? Abraham sets off, half a dozen steps in, yeah, okay, 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 it's okay, it's fine, stop, I I, I know. Or it could have been the moment when the servant, when he says, stay here for the servants, we're, we're going to sacrifice. Okay, 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 right, it's fine, stop. Or when Isaac's carrying the wood. Here's the wood, Dad. All right, and you've got the lighter. Great. But where's, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Maybe the angel would have said, oh, stop, stop, stop. It's a test. It's okay, now I know. Now it's right up until the point where Abraham is about to plunge the blade in. Is this a story about being willing to give up for God the thing which is most precious to you? That's how it's often interpreted, isn't it? Well, if you read the story of Abraham in Genesis 22, you find that God sometimes asks you to give up things that are really precious to you, but it's all right because he gives it back to you in the end. Is that a satisfactory reading of the story? It might sometimes be true in a general sense, but is that what this text means? Hmm. On one level, of course, Isaac surely is the most precious thing 
that Abraham has. He's the son whom Abraham loves, the son of promise, the son gained in old age. <laughs> but there's a lot more to it than that, isn't there? You see, Abraham, Abraham's, Isaac to Abraham is more than just something that he loves. Isaac is the son in whom all the promises of God rest. It was never just a promise to Abraham. I'll bless you and I'll give you a son that you can love. Mightn't that be nice? It was, I will give you a son because through your offspring, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's way, way, way beyond a nice story about how God might ask you to give up what you like and then we'll give it back to you again in the end. When God asks Abraham to take Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah, he says, take your future and kill it. He says, take your past and kill it. He basically says, cease to be in some ways. Remember, Abraham's whole story has been a story of waiting for this child. Waiting for the child of promise. Waiting for the one through whom his offspring would be named. So to kill Isaac as an act of worship is to kill your whole past. It's to write off everything that you've waited for. It's to write off the whole lot, your history, gone in the flash of a blade. It's to write off your entire future. It's to write off the thing that God has said is the means by which your whole future is secured. It's an absolutely enormous test. But this is the thing, isn't it? Because for Abraham, perhaps the potential is there to lean on the gift rather than to lean on God. By sacrificing Isaac, does that mean that God's promise is somehow expunged, done with, removed? Or does Abraham have to trust that even if he goes through with this awful task, still God remains God? That seems to be the thrust of this in terms of what Abraham is being asked to do in sacrificing Isaac, putting to death his past and his future and leading on just God. Perhaps, friends, this story stands over and against the kind of trivialization of spirituality or the Christian life that is so current in our generation. The kind of idea that God will give you a blessed life. All you have to do is sin manage really well. All you need to do is make sure that you never view porn, that you're faithful, that you save enough money, that you think about the future, that you live a middle class life, that you are moralistically kind of pretty good. 
And that will safeguard for you a reasonably trouble-free life. Maybe I'll get a bit poorly. Maybe we have a few dramas along the way. But hey, you know, God's good. God's with me. Oh, excellent. Nice. And in doing that at times, isn't it possible that as Christians, we lean on the blessings more than we lean on the giver of the blessings? And we depend upon the fact that we have stuff even when it's staff that God has faithfully given, even when it's staff that God has promised. We lean on that rather than lean on God. We lean on material things. We lean on gifting. We lean on calling. We lean or presume upon spouses or friends or jobs or incomes. We lean on anything at times, other than lean on God. No such luxury for Abraham. Take the son whom you love, the son in whom all my promises are built on or through. Lean on me, Abraham. The test is whether it is really God whom Abraham fears. The test is whether Abraham really trusts God or whether he trusts something else. Let's read the next bit of text, Lucy. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What do you think the word's going to be then? Without looking at my phone. Provide! Yeah, absolutely. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. There's a song about that. (laughs) so here we are this third verb provide test fear provide Abraham looks up and sees a ram caught in a thicket not a lamb notice (laughs) but a ram and he sacrifices the ram and calls the place the Lord will provide and then the narrator adds as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided one of those nice, neat little editorial comments that tells you that this was not written as it happened. <laughs> There's one other place in the story that we've read where the verb provide comes up, and that's where Isaac asks Abraham where the lamb for the sacrifice is. Abraham says God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. So three times we have provide showing up in this story There's an interesting note about the verb to provide because it's the same Hebrew verb. It is spelt exactly the same as the verb to see. (gasps) So is it provide or is it see? It's quite obvious why some translators, or most in fact, uh, go for provide because it carries with it the sense of substitution. 
And that's sort of a Christian theological persuasion. Substitution is part of Christian theology. It hints and points towards Jesus, who was a substitutionary sacrifice for us. And here we have a story of a man who is about to kill his son, and God says, no, 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 don't. don't." And there's a ram, and there's a substitute. And so God provides a substitute. Make of that what you will, whether that's smuggling in a later Christian theology or whether you can genuinely read that out of this text. But what is at stake if we take this as a see rather than provide? Well, let's think about it. If we go with see, then it might suggest that Abraham's fear of God is somehow enabling of him. God tests him. Abraham is proved to fear God. And the next thing that happens is that Abraham sees a ram. Perhaps we could suggest that this story tells us something about the way that those who endure divine testing and are shown to be people who fear God receive a capacity to discern the provision and the purpose of God in ways that others may not. Abraham only sees the ram after the angel has called down from heaven and said, now I know that you fear God. Perhaps for those who endure serious testing and come out the other side, limping maybe like Jacob, but with a sense of knowing, well, I've shown that I fear God. Maybe it's to those people God grants particular insight and discernment into the ways that God works. You see, then we have this phrase that's added in by the author or editor of the text, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided, which can be, he shall be seen. (laughs) The Lord will see to the sacrifice himself. The Lord has, Abraham sees the ram and he calls the place. The Lord has seen. On the mount of the Lord, he shall be seen. It suggests something really deep theologically. And all, all of scripture really is about God rather than us, isn't it? But there's something here as well about the capacity of people who have been tested, people who have come through testing, people who God has shown to fear him, that they not only get to see and discern God's ways, but there's something about the whole process that enables them to see God. He shall be seen on the mountain of the Lord. This place This thing, this climax of it all, those who go through the ringer, those who who experience the intense heat of testing and don't melt away to nothing but are refined by it, their reward is revelation of God. It's not, oh, I'm just, just more respected as a leader now because I've gone through it and everyone thinks, oh, wow, look at him. 
Now the reward is you know God better. You see him. Your reward is to gain an insight into the way that the divine heart is, into what God is like. Perhaps we could say that for all those who are willing to relinquish their claims on everything, all their hopes for a future, all the things that they hold dear to right now, all the things that they think make them something, all the things that they hope will make them something, all of the things that are from God that are good but have become subtly idols in their heart, perhaps for those who can relinquish that, who are willing to say, God, you and nothing else, perhaps they receive a revelation that God and God alone can be their future. Is that true of you? Is God and God alone your future? I don't mean it academically or abstractly. I mean in actual, concrete, lived, experiential terms. Are you carrying a sense in your heart that take the world, take everything, leave me Jesus, and that's enough? The purpose, perhaps, of God's testing of you and I is in order that we might be stripped of every false hope, every temporary thing, in order that we might find that God alone is where our future lies. Lucy, let's have the last couple of verses. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. Test, fear, provide, slash see, bless. God says to Abraham, because you've done this, I will indeed bless. I will make you as numerous as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. The connection between divine blessing and human obedience is endlessly complicated, friends. It's a profound mystery. It can't be explained away simply. It shouldn't be attempted The reality is that God is pleased through human obedience to announce and to perform his blessing on the nations of the world. And this cannot be reduced down to mechanistic categories. So the kind of category that says, oh, if if I just, I'll do that and God will just do that. Because that would be presumption. The whole point of the story shows that God tests 
He seeks to find out what's in Abraham. He discovers Abraham fears me. He shows himself. Abraham receives something and God provides and he receives revelation of God. And out of that, God says, because you've done this, I will surely bless. Indeed, I will bless. We've got to insist that everything is grace, that blessing is gift, that it all comes from God. But we also must recognize, as most significant Christian theologians over the centuries have done, that the right human response is given as well. That when we think, well, is it me or is it God? It's both of you, because God has chosen to work in communion with humans. That God was pleased to not just automatically bless the nations of the world, but through Abraham's fear and obedience, he says, yes, I will bless you. We can't assume, but we must hope. We can't think that it doesn't matter what I do, God will just bless me anyway. Where have you read that in the scriptures? It doesn't matter what you do, God will just bless you. Right. So that's 97.5% of the New Testament wiped out in one fell swoop. All those texts exhorting obedience, worship, trust, faith, the right response, the right attitude. This story, gone. Doesn't matter. Do what you want. God will just bless you because God likes you, kind (laughs) of, I think. Of course not. If you take anything at all from this story, you must take seriously that God takes you seriously. And God takes your obedience and your fear of him seriously. And God wants to give you insight into who he is. And God wants to make himself to be the heart and the center of all your hopes. And God wants to take all of those things and give them to the world as blessing. And you must not assume that you can do what you want and God will just bless. There is no such thing as just blessing anyway. It's deeply costly. For Abraham, it was deeply costly. Now today, I mentioned earlier at the start of the meeting that today is the first Sunday of this season of giving. And rather than preach a sermon on money, I felt that God wanted me to preach this sermon. And it was in a prayer meeting a few weeks back, we were praying about the season of giving, and I felt God start to speak to me about Genesis 22 again. And I felt God speak to me about us as a church submitting to the authority of God, surrendering ourselves to him, submitting to the testing, going through the process of refining, learning to fear him, receiving insight into him in order to be, therefore, a blessing. Abraham didn't know God was testing him, and we may not know if God is testing us but the likelihood that he may well be (laughs) 
should make us super eager to imitate Abraham's fear of God. So much of our hope as Christians in the West rests on money. Still, despite the exhortations in Scripture to not serve God or money, you can't serve God or money. It doesn't stop most of us trying. But our future is with God in the coming age. And money doesn't open that door to you. It doesn't open that future, it doesn't secure that future for you. Jesus does. In actual fact, money might be the thing that hinders you from entering that future, as the rich young man discovered to his great chagrin. (laughs) And you see, there's another mountain. Actually, it's not another mountain, it's the same mountain. (laughs) The mountain on which the story of Abraham and Isaac happens is the same mountain where the temple was built. It's Jerusalem, It's, it's Mount Zion. This is where the testing is happening. This is where the sacrifice, the binding happens. It's on Zion. It's where the temple was built. It's where Jesus was crucified. It's where another dreadful test reached its climax, where the fear of God and the provision of God and seeing the revelation of God all came together, where blessing was secured at great cost. And God put God's self on display in the sacrifice of a son. I personally have zero to gain from the season of giving. What a relief. Okay. So I can shoot straight. As the lead elder of City Church, what I want for you more than anything else is the revelation of God. I want you to understand this. I want you to hear it from me as the senior pastor of the church. What I want for you is the revelation of God. I do not pray and wrestle over your lives that you might have another car or a better house or another holiday or be able to upgrade from Primark to Next or from Next to River Island or whatever else it might be. I do not wrestle over your household bills that God might provide for you to shop at Sainsbury's or Waitrose instead of going to Aldi. I don't. I pray that God might open your eyes that you may see him because none of your flipping hope depends on stuff. It depends on Jesus. And hence I pray, and hence we pastor towards that end. So we're not after a numbed and satiated easy life for you with a bit of religion thrown in to cover all the bases. We're after a profound burning sense of the reality of God that shapes everything you do, say, think, and spend. Effectively, it's eternal life. And that is to know Jesus and to know his Father. And God will test us in order to make sure that we gain that Therefore, you should stop at nothing to gain it. 
nothing. And if that involves giving a little bit more in the season of giving, then that's good. Because you are no fool if you give what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose.